Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Devil's Backbone. ¿Qué es un fantasma? Un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez. What is a ghost? Tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again. Un instante de dolor, quizá. An instant of pain, perhaps. Algo muerto que parece por momentos vivo aún. Something dead, which still seems to be alive. Un sentimiento suspendido en el tiempo. An emotion suspended in time. Como una fotografía borrosa. Like a blurred photograph. Como un insecto atrapado en amba. Like an insect trapped in amber. And welcome to the Guillermo del Toro season of School of Movies. This week we are looking at his first theatrically released ghost story, El Espinazo del Diablo, The Devil's Backbone. He is my favourite director, and barring the introduction of a truly amazing talent whose work somehow speaks to me on a deeper level, and barring a wholly unexpected and entirely unlikely slide into fascistic right-wing political views in his old age, he's probably going to remain my number one for the rest of my life. Now, we're going to abbreviate his name, sometimes, I think, to GDT for the duration of this project, simply because you guys are going to get a bit sick of hearing Del Toro. As with all of his movies, we are suggesting you track it down first and then listen to our show on it afterwards. They're all inexpensive on DVD and streaming, but to get the full effect of his masterful camera work, we recommend the HD experience even for his lesser films. We skipped over Kronos and Mimic because we love neither film and wanted to start very strong. Those are what we'd like to call his practice movies. They have their own merit, but we will be going so much deeper. Because one of the concepts that GDT likes to create with is what he calls eye protein. Picture eye candy, something bright and colourful and lively, but designed to be quick and appealing. Eye protein is a visual landscape that actually nourishes you while you watch, a composition designed to be studied, where everything is intentional and nothing is throwaway. We'll be talking about that a lot, as these are all films designed to be interpreted. And with us tonight, we have, formerly from the A Year of Steam podcast and occasional random contributor to many other podcasts, Lauren Grieve. Hello there. Hello. Pan's Labyrinth, folks, is the sister piece to The Devil's Backbone. And when we cover that film in a few weeks' time, we'll be drawing parallels between these two. But let's get there first, because you guys need a, a grounding in The Devil's Backbone before we start drawing those two together. And for those who haven't seen The Devil's Backbone yet and want to hear how it's about what it's about first... The year is 1939, and the Spanish Civil War is raging. A young boy named Carlos, whose father recently died fighting against the tyrannical right wing, is left in a remote rural orphanage and struggles to make friends in a situation where everyone seems to be stressed and secretive. 
The adults in particular are worried because the fascists may come across this place and find Reds sheltering the children of Reds any day now, as well as the last remaining gold ingots which have been funding the revolution. In the courtyard stands an unexploded bomb dropped from a plane not long ago. Carlos starts seeing the ghost of a boy named Santi who went missing recently. The apparition is as white as porcelain and bears an eerily leaking head wound and seems to originate in the area of the water tank in the cellar. He appears repeatedly to Carlos, stalking him and declaring that many will die. Slowly, Carlos uncovers the plot regarding how Santi was killed and who among them will do anything to get to that hidden gold. Okay, spoilers from here on in. This is your last chance. If you if that tickles your pickle and you want to go and see that film before we carry on talking about it, go watch, then come back and thank us, and then listen. And now we will proceed. The handsome young groundskeeper named Jacinto was trying to crack the safe using keys stolen from Carmen, the orphanage's proprietor, who has known Jacinto since he was a young orphan here himself, and whom he is screwing cruelly on the side. Santi and a young bully named Jaime discovered his treachery one night, and Jacinto wound up accidentally killing Santi, in the struggle, hiding the boy's body in the water tank. He's feeling guilty and paranoid and suspects others know of his crimes, and Jaime does, but has not yet spoken of them. The fascists are closing in, capturing and questioning and executing Republican rebels. Orphanage co-runner Casares urges Carmen to leave with the boys and use the revolution's gold to find a hiding place. She is somewhat disgusted with his apparent cowardice. Jacinto tries to get the gold yet again and is seen off by Carmen's aged admirer with a shotgun. Jacinto returns and attempts to blow up the safe, killing several children and Carmen in the process, fatally wounding Casares. For good measure, he also stabs Conchita, his girlfriend, who was walking to the nearby town to get help. Carlos finally stands his ground and talks to Santi, who tells him to bring Jacinto to him. Jaime also comes clean to the boys about the terrible crime he bore silent witness to. Returning to the orphanage, Jacinto and his disgusting cronies Pig and Ratman search for the gold when it becomes clear that Dr. Casares, standing guard, has in fact passed away. Goldless, the cronies ditch Jacinto and drive off, and the remaining boys, freed by the shade of Casares, trap Jacinto in the cellar, stab him with makeshift spears, and push him into the water, where the gold he has recovered weighs him down, and Santi himself embraces him as he drowns, screaming in filthy water. The living boys hobble out into a dangerous, uncertain world, filled with savage nationalists poised to kill them watched over by the shadowy ghost of the regretful Casares. So we begin and end this tale, because it rhymes, with a monologue asking us to consider what is a ghost. So... What are ghosts in the devil's backbone, 
and what are their symbolic parallels? Can I just say the thing that strikes me the most interesting about? Oh wait, ah, I've already broken it. The thing about the ghost. You said that interesting. Thing, we yeah. are never saying interesting about Guillermo del Toro stuff. It is not interesting. It is I fascinating. Will, I will immediately qualify it though. But the thing that the Devil's Backbone ghosts have over other ghosts is, in a weird way, their corporeality, because they're not the kind of ghosts that go through walls they have a very physical like heavy presence mm-hmm. um like there's even the scene where uh, carlitos is hiding in the the towel cupboard mm-hmm. and santi is like trying to open the door and you don't normally see a ghost that has that kind of physicality yeah if it was um, the frighteners he'd have stuck his head through right yeah side note at least one of the ghosts in crimson peak does in fact walk through a door but there's none of that in The Devil's Backbone. Uh, but that's just another aspect of this film, I think, because it's doing a lot to subvert your expectations for the gothic genre. And just having your ghosts physical like that, I think, is is just like another little nod towards that subversion. I think that has a dual purpose as well. If you consider what Del Toro tries to put across um, and how he wants ghosts to be perceived in his work um, which is that yes they are frightening and yes to a degree they are threatening but they're also sad and they are vulnerable now if something is physical rather than entirely incorporeal it can hurt you which makes it more threatening but it can also be hurt which makes it more vulnerable and in combination with the very particular Um, visual effect that he wanted on Santi, which is that that sort of very fragile, porcelain-looking, broken head. It emphasises very much Santi's youth and vulnerability and the fact that he is this tiny, tiny child in comparison with the, the, the person who was responsible for his death. And I, I think that, that the corporeality also grounds the ghosts more because the ghosts in the devil's backbone aren't something to be feared, even though that's the way that they're shot sometimes. Mm. Uh, they're things to be pitied. Yeah. And and that's, I think, uh, another big part of it. I mean, there was a quote I saw somewhere about how del Toro works in creating his monsters, or at least in, in a sense, that he, growing up, had night terrors and – found a way to come to terms with and basically sign a treaty with the monsters of his nightmares uh, so that he could use them for creative means. And there was, he related a story in an interview that I saw that he... Pause. Let's hear from Guillermo himself. This guy has one of the most charming, easy manners of any filmmaker. And I could pretty much listen to him all day and all night. I've heard two ghosts in my life. One was in New Zealand scouting The Hobbit, which was the second time I heard a ghost. And the first time was in in the bedroom of my late uncle at my parents' house. My uncle and I, he was named Guillermo. I was named after him. He was my my mother's half-brother. And he... uh, he loved the occult and horror and all that. And he, as a child, was a huge influence in me. And one day when we were uh, talking, he was like 20 years my senior. I said to him, when one of us dies, we should come back and let the other one know that there is a life after death. And I, of course, I, I had 
I was hedging my bets. I was like 10 years old, you know? He was gonna croak first, but he said, yeah, let's do that. And, and uh, he used to stay at my parents' house many, many weeks in a row, month, and he died. He died, um, uh, and then I, I got his room, and I was watching something on TV, a variety show, and I was doing my homework, and, you know, laying on my belly in the bed, and uh, all of a sudden I heard this, <sighs> this really deep sigh, really deep sigh, and really, really sad, like a tremolo. And, and I thought, what the hell was that? And, and uh, I turned off the TV, and I waited, and I heard it again. You know, and it was a really deep sigh. That's why in Devil's Wagon, the ghost is called the one who sighs. And I really started investigating. I didn't get scared. I, I pushed the pillow to see if the pillow was making noise, if it was the, the, the this or that. I went to the, to the, um, to the window, closed the window again. So was it a draft? And as I moved through the room, the breathing moved with me. And I, I started to get freaked out. And then finally I sat on the bed and I said, maybe it's, it's me pushing the air out of the cushion on the mattress, what, what can I be? And I put my ear against the mattress and uh, I hear the sigh inside the mattress, bouncing in the coils of the mattress, slightly metallic, <gasps> you know? And, and, and at that moment I recognized the voice, I went, I know that voice. It's my uncle's voice. Oh my God, this is my uncle's room. Oh my God, this is a ghost. Oh my God, and all that, like in one second. And I freaked out and ran away and, and I never slept in that room again, but I never heard him again. There, there's uh, just levels and layers of grounding to what is normally a supernatural and otherwise ethereal entity in in a movie like this mm, yeah and there is um a, a fantastic physicality to the vast majority of del toro's work he does mm. not um i mean there, there is cg that he works with i'm fairly certain that those jaegers weren't quite as big <laughs> as that <laughs> well indeed. at the very least yeah um, they, they had one hero bottle and anyway. they had to be really careful with it um, <laughs> but it fell um, over and crushed new york but he is he's very keen that everything should look very physical and that and as though you could reach out and touch it even if you you technically can't because it's um it's computer created he's very big into the idea of how things need to be lit and uh, putting them next to other things for scale, mm. practical effects where he can, and people in costumes where, where he can. As you say, Lauren, that groundedness, that earthiness, is what makes these situations feel so real and so visceral. And that, in the ghost stories, is is what connects with us. I think the... Um, uh, there's a, a through line from this to Crimson Peak, which mm. we'll discuss another day. When we do Crimson Peak. Absolutely. But there, I, I get the same tone mm. in that as I do in Devil's Backbone. And another thing about the two ghosts in this movie specifically. Now, this movie, uh, was, you hinted at earlier, Alex, is all about duality. There's a lot of juxtaposition of two things. And Santi is essentially the ghost of like water and cold. Mm. 
mm-hmm. while uh, Ceres is the uh, a ghost that was born from an explosion in the daylight. So he's actually like fire and heat. Mm-hmm. And the, the varied manifestations of the two of them is, is a really good kind of juxtaposition because they're both pitiable creatures, essentially. Uh, but Santi has like the water constantly floating around him, the uh, blood pouring out of his his head wound, and he kind of almost floats a little bit whenever he's like walking around. Like it, it feels very floaty his movements. Uh, while Ceres is completely um, not engulfed, but kind of heralded by flies. Uh, because the heat of the desert uh, like is has attracted the the flies to his body, and that's become like this this halo of sorts, which just creates again. I, it's just for juxtaposition purposes, I think. But the creation of these two separate ghosts that are pitiable for different reasons, that have very different parts to play in the plot, but they're both ghosts that have a physical presence and manifest in in opposite ways. What I was getting at regarding uh, what are the ghosts, I was definitely hoping you would go into how the ghosts come across. But what they are in the film, either of you guys want to... They are heralds, they are memories, Mm -hmm. Um, they are uh, guards after a fashion. Santi is in his own way trying Mm. to protect everyone and warn them, um, as is Cazares. It it sounds really ominous when he says many will die, but he's Mm. trying to stop them from dying. It's a caution, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, And also I think uh, they're trapped, which is another thing that makes them pitiable, this and and this kind of ties in with the the exploration of the the gothic feel this sense of an emotion which is tied to a particular place yeah. as much as it is a particular time he attributes this in the uh commentary to uh the stone tape uh, you you familiar with that one lauren no, no, I'm not. It was written by Nigel Neal, and it was actually a, a BBC Two like special, uh, aired in 1972. And we've seen it, and it's it, it didn't massively impress us. It, it had a very eerie feel to it, and it has a very unsettling ending. But what Neal puts across is that the stone tape is the building that uh, what the, the terrible thing that happens within the building makes an impression upon the st- within the stonework mm. and it replays that to certain people not everyone can catch it but the right people resonating in the right way will see that replayed image that replayed trauma and Oh, I can't remember where I was, uh, where I heard this recently, but uh, they said in a hundred years' time, when scientists work out what the hell ghosts are, it'll probably be something like this, mm. and it'll be mundane. It might even have been Del Toro who said that. There's, well, there's there's two echoes of this. One of which he refers to in the in the commentary, and the other one of which is, is something separate. But he talks earlier on um, about the idea of stone books, which is uh, gothic churches and buildings that were put together by stonemasons they would carve symbols into 
um, the the stonework to tell stories um, of who they were and when they were working. And and so that's a, a conscious human recording on those buildings, but not in a way that would be blatantly obvious to anybody. Mm. It, you would have to know what you were looking for to be able to read them. Yeah. And the other thing is um, recordings in the environment of what's going on in a particular place and time. Um, you can read when the Industrial Revolution happened in certain forests because there are marks in the trees when the pollution increased. Mm. And they can tell from... There's there's temperature differences in the oceans that will tell you what happened at certain... I mean, not in detail, obviously, it's very vague, but what happened at particular points in an, an epoch um, because of... change. You can look at changes in carbon levels. So we like have that. weathered the planet with our presence. Yeah, absolutely. But also that we can, we can read that and we can feel the effects mm. of that. And Gothic architecture... Uh, tends to tell a very simple story uh, at, at its core, which is that it sets light against darkness. You get a lot of uh, ugly-looking gargoyles, you get a lot of angels, and they're deliberately sculpted to throw shadow at people who are uh, observing them, and at the same time set in relief the light. And there's something wonderful about that, and something very much of the past, because... They don't make them like this anymore. I'm, I myself am kind of um, caught in the past. I've, I've tried to write um, the fetishization of technology, but I can't write in the here and now because the here and now immediately is past. Mm. And speculative future is something I'm very, very interested in. But I'm far more interested in what other people think of the future because my version of the future is always changing. So if I write it down, it sets it in stone. Mm. Which is, by the way, a great idiom. <laughs> I think as well there's, a, there's a, a difficulty with gothic stories these days, which is maybe not so much now, actually. I do wonder if it's passing off a little bit, but I think, and, and Del Toro does talk about this himself as well, that, that gothic stories were taken very seriously at one point and then they were taken so seriously that people started mocking them. Mm. And then it became very difficult to take them seriously. Mm. And it, it makes me think of the fact that everyone takes the piss out of Twilight, which is a take on Wuthering Heights, which is a gothic novel, but was written in an era where people were being very winky and noddy about gothic novels. So it's kind of self-awareness of self-awareness of self-awareness. And before you know it, everything's disappeared up its own arse. And, uh, its own glittering arse. You, you have to be able to kind of extract that if you want to use that form again. And I think focusing on gothic horror stories and gothic ghost stories, which are very short and sharp and visceral, is a, a good way of doing that. Make it so that the impact kind of hit people before they realise that this is all silly. This goes back to this being a sister piece to Pan's Labyrinth or Pan's Labyrinth being a sister piece to this. The ghosts in this are two of the three supernatural elements. Otherwise, it's entirely grounded. Uh, the third one, of course, being the ribbon from the bomb. You know, when he asks, like, where is Santi? And the bomb essentially points 
him in the direction to go to oh, nice. speak with the with the ghost. So those are the three supernatural moments that are the fairy tale elements injected into a gothic horror piece, while Pan's Labyrinth is a fairy tale with gothic horror injected. So it's like the the yin to the yang of the other film. Mm. Uh, and that's that's un, like the other element I feel of their of their agency in the plot at least. Okay, so uh, what are the hallmarks of the gothic romance that we can see in this film? Well, uh, there's almost always a death or some kind of mystery. Uh, it's driven by uh, finding a secret or a treasure. Uh, it usually involves underground elements like catacombs or like cellars. Something hidden, something lost, and something buried. Yes, essentially. And something... And there's usually an element of uh, the primary agent in the piece to be a seeker of truth related to that. And usually the primary uh, protagonist in the gothic romance has a purity about them. They're the pure hero, and they usually uncover something absolutely filthy. Mm. And I think that's where um, some of the the knowingness about gothic stories came to be a thing, because where you start with that purity and innocence can often become naivety and ignorance. And then it... it kind of loses its impetus for that purpose there's also an element in gothic media of uh past wrongs and past mistakes catching up to make part of the the mystery and the horror yeah. and and it's a uh, very much about almost a domino effect of like the sins of the past bearing fruit in the present uh which is very relevant to this movie in a lot of ways when I saw uh, Film Joy doing Pan's Labyrinth, I was like, oh, God, he's going to do it so well. There's almost no point us doing it. And he did it really well, so we're going to have to try to uh, uh, do our best to outstrip that. But he did say something which at the time I was like, what? No. Uh, and that was that Pan's Labyrinth is not a fairy tale. It's a parable. And looking at the distinction between the two of them, I think he's right. And it's something that has uh, uh, actually... Uh, Del Toro said, very, the GDT said, very much uh, applies to, uh, to this. A fairy tale almost always gets uh, tied together with fairy tale endings and this sort of saccharine version of folklore that has become the more childlike uh, stories that are read over to children in more recent years. What fairy tale is, in our culture now, is what folklore used to be and what it's been refined into. And parables that have been around for just as long as folklore to the point where they were the same thing a lot of the time are a story that is symbolic. What is happening in the story is something larger. So uh, some people might call it a message movie. Uh, but uh, The Good Samaritan is a parable, mm. for example. But in this case, 
what is going on within the walls of the orphanage is a parable of the Spanish Civil War going on outside. Explain how, if you can. Just to add a little something extra about the um, the, the fairy tale route as well, I think particularly in Western interpretation, and by that I mean sort of American, British, Western European interpretation, we have become so focused on the actual in our in in what we will allow in our media and in our storytelling um that the term fairy tale has become dismissive mm. and one that means well it's not true is it yeah and that they get is, passed off with fairy tales about exactly yeah. and that is directly linked to um the origins of the word romance which is a lie, a fib, a story, something made up. Hmm. And the focus there is on the fact that these these stories aren't true and encourage people to disregard them and sweep them under the carpet and ignore them when the point is, like parables, they are there to give you information about wider concepts and wider ideas. This and Pan's Labyrinth are parables, but they take the form of a gothic romance and a gothic romance with a hell of a lot of fairy tale elements in it. <laughs> As in, like, they, he's woven folklore and fable and fairy tale into the network of Pan's Labyrinth so that it may as well be a fairy tale. It's just that there's something so much more powerful going on under the surface than what we would perceive a fairy tale to be now. Mm. Also, I would say that the terms fairy tale and romance are gender loaded words. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that. Very, they have been feminized concepts to the point where that is used to diminish them and to uh, to consider them unimportant and to go even further with that in relation to these two movies uh well, the reason that i would still say that you know i would still say fairy tale for pan's labyrinth specifically even though i understand the idea of a fairy tale versus a parable uh i think that the endings are just melancholy from the gothic injections but Pan's Labyrinth in the Criterion Collection interviews that Del Toro did, he specifically describes as a female piece. It is a there, there's a reason why the main character is a girl, yeah. and the whole piece is done from a very female perspective. While The Devil's Backbone is exploring many of the same themes and the same concepts in a similar story, a very echoed story, but in a male perspective, which is why it leans heavier on the Gothic elements. Yeah. And and fairy tales are gendered female specifically which is why i would i would still call it a fairy tale just because it reinforces that literal sister piece Mm, yeah and we said this when we were talking about the babadook fairy tales are the one of the reasons that they are they tend to be gendered female is because their purpose is it is scary out there outside the circle you stay here where it's safe don't go in the woods don't wander off just stay here where we can protect you Mm. Yeah. Whereas uh, Pan's Labyrinth, it's not, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Now this terrible thing's happened to you at the end. It ends the way it should end, which is tragic, but there is a wholeness to it rather than a, see, the silly girl didn't learn her lesson. Mm. Yeah. Well, some people right. work with fairy tales better than others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but uh, the uh, the parable of uh, the Civil War, how is the the conflict outside mirrored inside? Well, uh, so 
the you might need to give people a bit of a grounding into what actually happened during the Spanish Civil War. I was going to say the Spanish Civil War that was um, it was what 1938 I want to say 1936 uh, it, 1938 it ran from the uh, early 30s through to 39 it, I believe it, there was a little overlap with the Second World War. It led into the Second World War very specifically and very prominently in the way that Del Toro describes it. It was the testing ground for World War Two. It ran yeah. from thirty six to thirty nine. Ah, oh, hey, I was real close. Thirty, yeah. So, uh, and kind of the abbreviated version of it, from what I was looking at, is that it was the rise of of fascism and an attempted military coup. But there was a, a, the forces of kind of the the common folk the republic the reds as it were that were rising up to to meet them and it created this civil war uh but the big problem that related to it and again this is incredibly abbreviated was that while the republic had the money and the the literal gold in the the vaults of the banks the fascists that were performing the military coup just had overwhelming power and no one came to the republic's aid from other countries oh perfect i mean that's darkly perfect for exactly how he set this yes the uh, and like if you want to draw like quick parallels to the different elements of the film the the reds quote unquote uh, carmen she has the gold that she's using to secretly help fund that. Like it's a literal stash of gold that's being used for that purpose. Yakinto is like the uh, the embodiment of fascism in the film. I mean, there's a reason why he's shot to be this like perfect specimen mm-hmm. of masculinity. He was actually like a like an idol of sorts uh, in real life. Like he was this like super pretty boy like model. Hispanic and- Tom Cruise. Yes, essentially. Oh, was he um, in Obre los Ojos? I'm not sure. He I don't was. Know he oh, bloody hell. Obre uh, los Ojos but, is um sorry is Vanilla Sky the uh, original um, Spanish language version. Oh, very good. Uh, but he's depicted and even shot. The camera lingers on him in a way that is kind of showing off this perfect body. He's one of two characters in the film that go shirtless. Uh, and there's a very specific reason why the other one does. Where, But he's all about strength and violence and power through strength. And everything he does is very much in line with this fascist perspective. And his whole thing is he's trying to acquire the gold, whether or not it's to re- – like it's not to remove it from the Republic's gold. Oh, no. He just wants to buy it's, a farm. He just wants it. Well, he just – I mean, but specifically, he the wants farm it, is Conchita's The farm is uh, it, the farm is just a, a means to an end. He believes he is better than everyone else around him. Mm. That yes. is where the root of fascism lies, according to uh, GDT. That uh, nationalism comes from a place in the human heart where you believe genuinely, either like on the superficial level that you're better than everyone else whilst possibly this is my interpretation knowing inside that you're a fucking monster yes um and so that's so he's the representation of the of the fascist now the reason that i was kind of picturing that this was uh 38 was specifically because i i think the text of the film is taking place at the end of that civil war yeah it is uh because carmen uh, there's a lot of reasons why you'd think that because they're like running out of stock and and store and things like that uh and the fascists are clearly winning but then carmen who in kind of inherited this position and the ideology from her husband who died fighting uh for the reds 
she's representing that Republican side, but she's very frustrated because it's almost like uh, their leaders have fled or been or been killed at this point. So she's a holdout, but in a position where there's not much that she can do. And she's very like frustrated in that perspective. Then I find it interesting. Mm. I find it very <laughs> telling. I'm, hey, I make my students do that, too. If they write interesting or say interesting, I'm like, okay, qualify that or use a better word. Damn right. Thank you. Um, so the thing to keep in mind, I think, is that Carmen is literally in bed with the embodiment of fascism and has been for a very long time because they say that their affair started when he was 17. And uh, that, to me – is just represent, re- representing how uh, certain elements of the kind of old guard that was left after the Republican leaders fled were kind of already swaying towards that uh, that fascist mindset and not as dedicated to the Republican cause. And uh, that's represented in the film as her continued affair with uh, Jacinto. Mm-hmm. Uh, while the Doctor Cesares is kind of representative of the old establishment, this because he's this impotent, like very that word is so specific for him, like academic person who seems to be this like moral man of science, but is actually still very uh, insecure and uh, is not run by, but leans towards superstition uh, more often than he would admit. And and he's not dedicated to the ideals of either side. He's just a coward. He just wants to live. But he has this outward projection of what he thinks he's supposed to look like and what he's supposed to be doing because he's supposed to be part of this aristocracy. Mm. So, of course, he's going to throw his lot in with the Republic because they're the establishment. But he doesn't really believe in it. Uh, then – then man i i went even further into thinking about this because then conchita is kind of representative of the younger generation after the those that were currently fighting in you know today's parlance they would be almost like the the millennial generation is where conchita lies where uh she's almost at first swayed by this fascist lies because she starts out kind of in bed with chiquinta but Whenever the the horror of everything comes out, she stands against him and and you know decries that she is not afraid of him and dies for it. That she gets beaten down by the the fascist menace, and she's like of the immediate generation after the current one fighting. Then the children are the the future of like the next generation after that, and you can see. Uh, a duality in there between Jaime and Carlitos because Carlos is clearly the like moral thinking uh, like good person and he's the one he doesn't sell out the other kids whenever he was found outside with the smashed water jug uh, and he consistently like he said no the knife is mine and gets cut for it and he's just always forthright and like kind of going to save them while Jaime is being swayed by the fascist ideal because he's the other character that is shot shirtless mm. and he's the one who emulates in a lot of ways what Yakinta is doing and it's only through Carlos's friendship and interactions with him that he eventually kind of throws off that 
fascist yoke and he decides this is not what he wants to be yes i mean he's even in love with conchita that's what's that's what swings him in the end when uh uh, jacinto gives him back the little um cigar ring thing in it with a contemptuous i think this belongs to you he knows at that exact moment you kill conchita and since he was quietly in love with her already that was the moment yeah, and and furthermore, the children like they win, they defeat. They're the future, and they defeat this fascism through unity. Mm-hmm. And uh, after removing the fascist sway in their own ranks, and they uh, they're also aided by the ghosts that are like the, the literal images of the past. Uh, and after the fascists all, are hoisted by their own petard. Pet- Were yes. he not weighed down by the stolen gold? Were he not literally weighed down by the corpses of those he's murdered? He would and, possibly have gotten out. And Santi, the uh, the visual representation of Santi in this film, is actually taken from a lot of the anti-fascist propaganda f- posters at the time after they bombed several cities and killed a bunch of children. There's one in particular that looks just like how Santi looks. And it's like a child, it's a dead child with uh, that part of their head, like, smashed. And it, it says something along the lines of, you know, they're coming for your children next or something something like that. But it's it's a literal image of what the fascists do and the innocence that the fascists kill that drives them on. And they're helped by the the good deeds of the previous generation who fell to the fascists, it's like the good knock-on effect of the the bad knock-on effect in the form of Ceres' ghost. Because uh, Ceres manages bravery in his last moments. Yeah. Well, he manages to unlock a door, which is the most he does in the film, because he cannot well, not just that he uh, when he stands guard with his last few moments and he's bleeding out that he could either attempt to run or he could desert the children it's a terrible thing to do he could kill himself he could do anything other than standing guard and being the sentinel at that point but he has to present uh, a threat to pig ratman and jacinto i don't i don't think that's the moment that he becomes less of a coward because it's a bluff it's a bluff. He knows it's a bluff. They call his bluff because they just drive around to the other side and then come in and find him dead. I think that the moment where he says, I will always be here, and that binds his ghost to that site, I think that is his moment of casting off his cowardice and his impotence by becoming a thing between two places, which is kind of the definition of impotent. But by doing that, he gets to do one small action that saves all of the innocents that are the future generation. I agree with you. I also think he made that (laughs) resolution whilst in the death throes on the way out. He had to have made that decision on the way out. Oh, yeah, but it was after he does the bluff and he mm. sits back down, he says... Yeah, no, that's it, always... yeah, no, exactly, yeah. So I thought you, the, the ghost had said, had, uh, the shade had said that, but you're absolutely right, yeah. No, yeah, it's right before he dies. That, that's why I think that, that that moment is after the bluff. Um, but the, the very ending of the film shows the the children who have survived walking out into the desert that we know is at least a 36-hour straight walk to the next town in the middle of blazing heat with one of them bleeding out. Yeah. 
and it's shot very melancholically, but there's a weird tinge of hope that these kids fought back against the fascist and someday will have a future without it. And we know from real life that that wouldn't happen for 50 years uh, because of the dictatorship that rose after the rise of fascism in Spain. But there's still that element of hope, uh, which is not something you would expect from the ending of something that's gothic like this, but you would expect from something that has a more of a fairy tale or parable ending to a certain extent. GDT says at the end in the, uh, um, I think it's in the, the commentary, this is, uh, people think that this is a, a happy ending. It's not. And, you know, he lays down all the, the, the seriousness of it. And it, the hope whether is he, the hope That's is the still there. Yeah. It's like he hasn't, he made the decision not to kill all the boys. Mm, yeah. And so... The, the Whether he wants it to be there or through, not, even there. though, and this is the thing, even though every practical, rational, observational element of the audience has got to be looking at that and going, it's 36 hours walk, one of them has a broken ankle, one of them is bleeding severely. Even if they get to this town, we know that town is not sympathetic. Oh, yes, they were executing leftists. Absolutely. L- they're l- they're two not going to get any help when they get there. But the hope is enough. And, and they prove themselves hardy already. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's that's one of the most important things about it, is this idea that there is always going to be um, a, a, a crack of light and you might have to stick a fucking chisel in it and wiggle it backwards and forwards to get some more. It's not going to be easy, but that, that crack of light is there and you just yeah. have to like stick your eye up I really, think really only close. mimic of the GDT films has a kind of a uh, ending yeah. principally because of how miserable he was while filming it mm. and the other yeah. thing i think that the the source of hope comes from for me is that the the view of the characters who even those who represent the worst elements of um, fascist government and and selfish, self-interested, narcissistic behaviour and aggression, there is still a sympathetic eye cast on them. And I think one of the reasons that the the dynamic between Jacinto and uh, Jaime is so it's so. I want to say interesting, and I actually mean interesting. It's it's um, compelling. Get, compelling, thank you. Um, one of the most compelling elements of of their interactions is that Jaime gives you the example of what can happen if you can let go of that shame, if you can move past it, and and get beyond that sense of. Uh, of arrogance and self-importance, which is wildly overcompensating for a deep-seated insecurity and, and conviction that actually you're not better than everybody else in this room, you're worse than everybody else in this room, you're shit and you deserve to drown. That's that monster thing. I Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as you say, his, because his saving grace is, is Conchita, but it's not, it's not exactly Conchita herself. It's not the... the um, 
it, it is kind of the emotional symbolism of, you know, the, the girl will save him. Well, no, he wants to be good enough him, for Conchita to... Exactly, that's yeah. my point. It, it comes from him, not from her. Yeah. Um, but he he is the one who is who could grow up to be Jacinto, but doesn't because of his willingness to mm. let go, admit what he's done, and accept help and support from the other boys. And it's also a representation of a cycle of abuse, because Jacinto was himself an orphan, much like Jaime was. And it's only like, Jaime could be looking at Jacinto and be like, that's my future. But because of the interactions with Conchita, and because of his interactions with Carlos, he breaks that cycle and gets to live. Holy shit. It's Tom Riddle and Draco Malfoy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And... Can I also say that saying that there's a, a crack of light that you need to chisel out is very poignant for this film because in this film, light is bad. Mm. Uh, Everyone dies this, in the daylight. It goes back to the duality and the subversion of gothic expectations because you expect the night to be the dangerous part, but it's all of the aspects of light that ends up being the most dangerous. It's the, the orphanage is surrounded by a desert and it itself is the shade in that desert. Every time somebody walks out of the shadow into the blinding light of that desert, Mm. it's bad for them. It ends up being bad. Uh, Like Concerta gets killed. The, the boys are like, they, at the end, they, they definitely are going to have a long, hard road ahead of them. Uh, and even more so, almost every shot that requires the light and dark juxtaposition. So in very early on, there's a shot with uh, Pig and Rat and uh, Jacinta sitting, eating in light, while three quarters of the screen is in darkness around them. And they're the evil component of that scene, and they're in light. Uh, Jacinta smokes cigarettes all the time, and that cherry on the end of his cigarette is him carrying that light with him even into the darkness, which is like imposing against it. And the only other person who smokes a cigarette is uh, Jaime, because he picks up Jacinta's cigarettes like twice throughout the film, which is like part of that him trying to be like Jacinta. And and it goes even to the point where pig and rat ask him if he has a smoke right before they leave at the beginning, he tells them no. And then as soon as they start driving away, lights lights up up. a cigarette, Mm -hmm. which is a double thing because he's also, it shows immediately he's a liar. He would even lie to his own cronies. Yeah. Um, You've also got the explosion and the fire that comes from that, and the gold. And the fire of his uh, the lantern that he carries in whenever he's trying to open up the safe. Yeah. The lantern that Santi specifically blows out, the representation of water, another duality of water and fire. But in this case, water is actually more protective, and the fire is actually more heralding of danger. Mm. Oh, so is moonlight, and moonlight's water. Yes, Uh, DDT went out of his way to make the, uh, the the desert, the external scenes, the daytime scenes look like Sergio Leone. 
This brings us to a major theme of pretty much every GDT movie. That is that the monster is the human, usually the the handsome champion human. That's a Pixar thing as well, by the way. Their villains are always the champions of the system. And the the actual monster, the ghost, the ghoul, the, the, the hideous creature, the thing that dwells in the shadows, almost always is far less of a threat. They start off almost always very, very frightening, and they end up the thing that we desperately want to to catch a break. With one notable exception. Yes. Oh, yeah. The pale man can go fuck himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, now the, uh, the the pale man in uh, Hans Labyrinth, we'll get to that. And I think that D, uh, GDT himself specifically goes out of his way to say, except for this guy. Because, uh, um, yeah, the pale man is uh, uh, symbolic of the absolute worst of mankind's actions. But, uh, yeah, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that's gross, gruesome in GDT films that's, uh, that, that's not extremely dangerous. Say, for example, Samael. Mm. Uh, in uh, in Hellboy and and all of the kaiju, mm. but there's a the, what you said about the the yin and the yang, Lauren. I I agree completely, and it's one of the reasons that I find uh, Del Toro's films so fascinating is that there is always this sway between the light and the dark, the cool and the warm, the moonlight and the sun, the male and uh, masculine and feminine, and that the, the, mm-hmm. this constant. And I, I said this to you earlier as well, Alex. There is a lot in media that works with the idea of extremes. Um, And this is something that I think is becoming, if it wasn't there already, and I'm pretty sure it's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, very prominent, particularly in American culture, um, this, this notion of two extreme points on a spectrum. But they are very distinct, very separate, and people don't seem comfortable with the idea of any kind of overlap. In Del Toro's movies, there's always this sense of flow between one and the other. And the idea that that neither of these two polar opposites, if you like, are evil. It's when one is taken to extremes to the exclusion of, of any of the other that it becomes unbalanced and threatening and dangerous. Uh, on that note, have you guys watched the trailer for this film? Oh, God, no, we steer clear of it. Is it like, boom, the ghost boy? Yes, it is specifically shot and edited to cast Santi as, like, this evil presence and Yakinta as more of, like, a heroic presence. Oh, and my God. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it this didn't is bloody my... work. It only made $6 million. Yeah, you know why that is? Because it was released two days before September 11th. Uh, yeah. And it I, starts uh, with a fucking giant bomb launch from an aircraft. Of course yeah. it was never going to do well. Yeah, it was literally <sighs> shown in the first showing of it was in Toronto, September 10th, yeah. and uh, 2001. And it ended up only opening in, I think, 12 screens, yeah. which would definitely go to its criti- commercial failure. But it was very critically successful. I think there that's was where a, Richard Kelly should get together and go bowling. As a yeah, director of Donnie Darko. I don't know, Del Toro could possibly teach him a thing or two. Yes, for that reason too. <laughs> can, I, can I go instead of Richard Kelly, please? <laughs> I think I've got more to learn right now. But I just wanted to point out that the creation of a trailer that shows you 
your expectations that are then subverted is a very what's that film I mention every time I come on this podcast? Sucker Punch? Yeah, it's a little bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> Theater is nowhere from Friday, rated R. If it's done deliberately, though, and I have it seen it work. done before, yeah. to very good effect, Red Eye. Red Eye begins He's like that, but eyes. then it ends up. Yes, I know. Telling kind of you what it is. Like, in fact, it literally tells you the ending of the film. So it's like, oh, we got yeah, you. Now, see you next time. But they're trying. They are at least trying to subvert that expectation on purpose. So They, they can't do it now because people no, go mental for but going, this wasn't what do, I expected. Exactly. What they can do is lie. Tr- people who make trailers almost put me off seeing it. Yeah. Because that first trailer was so... Jump scare. Jump scare. scare. We're taking this and we're turning it into a very standard formulaic horror. And I was like, I can't see this butchered in that way. It wasn't until the second trailer that I thought, yeah, okay, they might have done a good job with this. Yeah, and the the one jump scare in The Devil's Backbone is specifically used in the trailer. Like, it might as well have just been a trailer moment. The boom eye in front of the keyhole bit. Yep, mm. the one actual it. jump scale. I wasn't going to mention it because it's the only bit of kind of creaky CG, like early 2000 CG, and you can really feel it. It feels yeah. like under those circumstances, they could have just done a really elegant composite of the actor with that that the the skull. Like they've they've overlaid repeatedly these skeletal um, designs on this this boy, and it's eerie as hell. So it doesn't fit with. Like a really close-up polygonal eye. Mm, Right. But now that we've mentioned when it came out, they actually had a conversation. Should we postpone releasing this film? Like, should we should we hold on to it? And uh, there again, there was an interview where Del Toro says that he felt very strongly that we're going to need this film, even though it's not at a time where a lot of people are going to see it. Mm. I feel like it needs to be out there, given what just happened. And And America got no better with uh, aircraft's terror, tension and threat uh, in the next few years. And uh, ultimately, their response is ranged uh, between um, overly aggressive, patriotic American style action movies like, you know, even now the Transformers movies do that Um, and superhero movies that give us hope in these uh, these heroes. And then there's those. Superhero super reaction of uh, the uh, Nolan's trilogy, um, where it's it's not hopeful, and it, in fact it's kind of criticizing America's response to the uh, to the the responsibilities of the war on terror. Mm-hmm. Basically, all of the high maze of America grew up to be Yacintos. Yeah, mm. that is fucking true. And the more material out there right now about the rise of nationalism and why it's a really really bad thing for the world the better the more things that can be shared with the younger generations who are like this nationalism i'd like to know more about it (laughs) would you like to know more literally starship troopers okay um so yeah to go back to the whole monster and the human thing jacinto 
the actor uh, Noriega asked, should I put in like yellowing teeth to make myself look disgusting? And GDT said, no, he has to look beautiful. He has to look like a beautiful man that uh, everyone would look at and go, well, this is a fine specimen. And um, I noticed one thing he does with almost everyone that he tries to control. He grabs them by the back of their hair. He, you remember, he, he grabs Carlos before he cuts his face with the uh, knife. He grabs Conchita by the back of her hair, originally when they're just kissing, and then later on when he stabs her in the uh, the stomach. There's something about... I mean, Noriega plays it fantastically. Like, uh, he, he makes himself a true villain. It's... It, he moves like a jungle animal at times when he's um, stalking down... Boys specifically, when he comes barreling across the uh, uh, courtyard in the dark towards Carlos, he's frightening. And then when you call back to his behavior in the flashback, and he corners Santi, and then every time Santi takes a, a mo- like a quick move to escape, he jumps to intercept, but keeps on moving, and he's sort of looking around the place. He has kind of a bird-like quality to him, where he won't actually look at the person he's menacing. Like, he'll look at them, and then he'll just be looking at the surroundings, wondering if they're being watched as well, while still moving in. It's very unnerving. Well, there's a really good quote, actually, about uh, this this whole concept, and it's that uh, you must have flaws to be a good human being. Mm. And that was a big part of the film, because all of the good characters have some flaw. They're impotent, they're They're missing part of their leg, they're incomplete in some way. And the one character who is otherwise a perfect specimen is essentially missing what makes a person a human. Yeah, his empathy. Yeah, that you it's almost like you need to have a flaw like everybody must have a flaw and if you don't have a physical or like other kind of flaw, your flaw is not being a person. I think Del Toro says he's missing his heart. Mm. I would say he's missing his self-concept. He There's a, a scene towards the end where he finds a photograph of himself a, as a child and his first action is to try and scratch his own... His, himself out of that picture. No, it's a blurred photograph. His face is blurry and he's trying to scratch it into focus. And uh, and that's the thing is his past, his his like where he's from, who he is, is so taken from him, is is so shrouded in this like cloud of of history that he wants it. That's why he keeps showing the picture to pig and rat and they don't give up. Mm-hmm. Monk, uh, uh, I, I don't know if we can swear on this one, you but they don't on this care. One. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay, <laughs> GDT swears quite a lot, so you can go ahead. They super don't give any fucks, and mm-hmm. he just is like, "Oh, this is my dad. He looks like an accountant. This is my mom," and they're like, "We don't care." Uh, but he sits there trying to scrape at it, and it's it's a blurry photograph that he's trying. He's wishing wasn't blurry. Mm-hmm. He even says, "Oh, I must have moved whenever it happened," which is reflected in the uh, the dialogue at the beginning and at the end, the narration. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the definitions of a ghost is a blurred photograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he is also as trapped as the ghosts. He's institutionalized. He grew up here. 
he could easily have moved on, gone to the town, gone to fight, gone to do anything. But, but no, he's, he's come back here to build chicken coops. There's a very specific shot at the end when uh, the second version of that monologue is being uh, read out, where it cuts to Santi, it cuts to uh, the, the the wreckage, and then it cuts to Jacinto floating dead, and then his postcards on the, the surface implying that, yes, he is trapped in amber here and always was. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, every, so the thing that I thought find most fascinating about this film is the way that it's shot is that since the definition of a ghost is a thing trapped between two places, two ideals, everyone is already a ghost in this film. Mm -hmm. They're trapped between two sides of a war. Most of the framing and the cinematography puts like the sky and the ground at equal footing and they're usually in the center of those two things they're usually trapped between light and dark there's so many moments that represent that every single character is somehow by that definition already a ghost and it's and, and in the doctor's case it's only by literally becoming a ghost that he's able to do something to help others out of that circumstance. Mm. There's also the uh, the slightly meta element of if you're watching a story which is set that long ago, most of the people involved in that story, mm-hmm. even if they get out of this particular story alive, oh, no, dead. are dead now. It's like looking at a Victorian photograph. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. And the, the, the sepia light mm. enhances that impact. And and the specific filter they used for darkness, uh, I think they called it like blue steel. It actually has a green tint to it, much like like water to contrast, like a metallic watery kind of blue mm. to contrast the sepia, like overexposed light. Mm. And one of the um, key negative uh, aspects of Jacinto that Carmen. like really agitates at that one point when he's trying to take the gold and she closes the door in disgust and and tries to level at him you know who he is and that he thinks he's better than everyone else the thing that she's poking at is his shame he is so appallingly ashamed to be this not much of an anything uh, and, you know, that, that she knows it deep down because she's seen him as a child. She's seen him cry. She's seen him come. She's seen everything, like everything. He hasn't got that much going on below the surface and she's seen it all. <laughs> I mean, she she calls him a prince without a kingdom. Exactly. Yeah. She's got his number. And when Conchita stares him down at the end, it's not, he doesn't kill her out of anger. He kills her because he can't be seen to be letting her mouth off in front of Pig and Ratman. And Conchita knows as well because the look she gives him is not one... She doesn't fear him. She does, but she's more disgusted with him. She holds him in contempt at that point. Yeah. And Um, she knows she's going to die. And it's such a sad, beautifully framed moment because they embrace in a mirror of that earlier moment, like I said... As she dies, and there's something about her actions that that she knows, getting this close to him, she was never going to be able to escape the brutality of this man, which but she's she been does. telling herself is not going to override, but it does. Absolutely, but she does manage to maintain a sense of defiance. Yeah, yeah, and as a as a reference to a previous uh, theme that we were talking about, where does Yakinta get that knife from? Oh, uh, Jaime. 
and it was Jaime who was acting like Yakinta. Yeah. So Jaime is the reason that Conchita dies. He conveys in that respect. the knife to Jacinto. Yeah. And it's just, and it's a, you know, a mistake in the past that leads to the destruction of what you hold dear in the future. Mm. And that is a specific theme that's reflected in the title itself. Um, because the devil's backbone, as described by the doctor, is actually a real-life disease called spina bifida. Mm, which they didn't understand in those days. Yeah. And th- so del Toro was like, well, we'll just call it the devil's backbone. That sounds like an appropriately superstitious description of it. But uh, spina bifida is specifically caused mo- – it, it, there's a lot of things that can cause it. But the, the most likely cause is a lack of folate in the mother's diet. So – uh, it's a direct knock-on effect of uh, like poverty and uh, poor diet and poor nutrition, which are all legacies of war in this specific case. Mm. And it's you make these decisions now, and then it's going to have these serious ramifications in the future that are going to lead to the deaths of of many of the next generation because of these mistakes that you made, unthinking of the ramifications. Mm. And, and the idea as well that the, um, the the one of the concepts that the doctor talks about is that people thought it was caused by sin that it was it was God's response to sin and in a way it could be argued that it is but it's not your sin it's the sin of the people who've deprived you and uh, yeah and the the limbo water the the very very old rum uh, <laughs> as he puts it Delicious. is then yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I only drink the finest fetus pickle rum. But, um, and but that's what I started using, formaldehyde. <laughs> it's my bespoke gastronomic bar. We only do those jars. But it's actually one of two times in the film that they talk about superstitious magical thinking of feeding on the young for the old. Yeah. Uh, because whenever they're talking about Santi as they're reading the comics at one point, one of the kids, uh, I think it's Galvez, he says, uh, I bet somebody kidnapped Santi because uh, rich people drink young kids' bloods to cure tuberculosis. And it's just – it's such a random, like, one-off line, but it's so specifically representative of the situation that's going on because this war that is engulfing the country and consuming uh, and being perpetuated by essentially the adults, the older generations of the culture is sort of feeding on the younger generations, in this case, like the children and the the very young children in that respect, because of these kinds of knock-on effects. Three things. Um, the the actual devil's backbone, that wasn't something that people called spina bifida. It was just something they twisted into the script. Uh, but the actual devil's backbone is a mountain range. I believe it's in Spain. And it was uh, a part of folklore. that They said God and the devil had a fight. And uh, that the better angels of mankind's existence versus its demons. And the uh, end result of that was that God maimed the devil and, and made his back crooked. And that's what the mountain range is. It, it's actually in Mexico because oh, okay. this film, the, the original script was going to be set in Mexico, not in Spain around, I believe like a re- the revolutionary a revolution 
war in Mexico. Yeah. So it was a very similar concept. And apparently that version of the script was very different from the one that we ended up seeing. And it was much more in line with Pan's Labyrinth because it had way more super supernatural elements to it. It was way less grounded gothic horror. He said he could make that film today. It has nothing to do with the devil's backbone. And I'm like, promise? <laughs> make it now. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it, it was that original draft was fused with a script called "The Bomb," written by someone else, and uh, that's where the, uh, the the bomb that was dropped in the courtyard and was just sitting there the whole time. Chekhov's bomb, which ultimately, confoundingly, doesn't go off. It, it's another subversion of expectations. Yeah. Uh, but but I bet what you were remembering about it, the mountain range being in Spain, is they were going to shoot in Spain and they couldn't find a mountain range that had an appropriate structure to be the orphanage. And it would have cost too much to put them in by CGI. So he rewrote the script into the devil's backbone that we now know. Of course. And the uh, there, were, there were three locations for, for shooting. One of them was just outside Madrid. That was the, um, the old school that, that made the, the bulk of the internal uh, scenes. Then there's one place which they built the uh, a fairly flimsy set for all the external stuff, which they do fantastic composite work for and fantastic back and forth. So you never think, I'm now, compl- I'm now miles away from Madrid. And then there was a third uh, place where they shot all the cellar scenes. And there was a fourth place that was this the town where they shoot the um the firing squad and they did that i i find it amazing that they actually did that whole scene in half a night of shooting in three shots like that's incredible (laughs) and uh he he does admit that the uh the massive bomb that comes out of that plane was entirely fictional to the uh, uh spanish civil war there was an air force apparently i did some some reading on that but they were more like fighter planes who would do sort of like dive bomb runs and, and like shoot places up but they would the bombs would be like petrol bombs thrown through windows rather than um ma- that, that massive thing it was more just a symbolic uh artifact that uh, showed that there was something horrible waiting for them out there all the time <laughs> I, I read that there were there were some bomb like things that were dropped. Not mm. they didn't look like that, but they were also specifically dropped on civilian targets. Yeah. And that the bomb itself represents not just the danger of the war raging on around them, but specifically the danger of that war to innocent people who aren't directly like direct combatants in it. And it is another idiom of the uh, the first casualty of war is innocence. Of course the first person who dies within the orphanage is Santi. We're just showing off to each other now with us. Look at all these things I yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, but that's it, what we do. <laughs> um, and the uh, one final, the the last of my three things. I keep calling him Ratman, but that's because of the episode of uh, Futurama where Leela meets Alcazar. He has a friend called Pig and a friend called Ratman and his girlfriend, and it just seems kind of perfect that Yacinto is Alcazar in this particular case. Um. It's also wildly appropriate for a parable, having two characters that are representative of animal archetypes yeah. like that, specifically negative animal yeah. archetypes. Uh, I think the who you're calling Ratman was called Mar- Marcello, yeah. Marcello, something like that. But Pig was really called Pig. pig. I was calling him Pig and uh, then Pig and Ratman the whole time, and then I found out that Pig was actually called Pig, and it was something that I had taken on board and forgotten for years. And I was like, he's actually called Pig? <laughs> okay.
What are your favourite visual motifs within the film that we haven't maybe mentioned yet? For good measure, what are your favourite repeated rhyming and mirrored moments? Do you want to go first, Sharon? Because I've talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> my my favourite mirrored moment is um, the grain of strength. The, the uh, Conchita gives the um, no the, the grapes the seeds. Oh right, sorry, I thought it was a coffee bean. No, no, <laughs> yeah, because you'd give children coffee beans at breakfast time. You're bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, no, the, the seeds, the grains, the idea. It's it's sort of their version of communion. I don't know whether that was a, a specific thing that was done or whether it was. It's just something that they do at this. Place. I've seen this film twelve times. I always thought it was a coffee bean. <laughs> okay, um, but um, but Conchita gives them all a grain every day at breakfast and um, the at the end when she's leaving uh, Jaime comes out with one and gives it to her oh, yeah um, which is her I, I kind of see as what she's given to them and specifically to him that that seed of, of hope and faith he is now returning to her yeah Okay, so I think one of my favorite, uh, like, scene, like, visual mo- motif kind of things, not the, not the echo, but the, I think one of my favorite, like, scenes is when Carlos is first going into the dormitory, and it is shot for all the world like the new guy coming into prison. Yeah. And uh, it goes to the point where Carmen even says, this is not a prison. But everything about the scene and the cinematography and the shot says, uh, yeah, no, this is definitely a prison. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it ends up almost every scene in and around that room ends up being somewhat like a prison film. But that first one is just so, so good. Uh, so pure at that. Uh, and then I, I have my echo scene too, if you still need more time, Sharon. Um, I really like the crouching by the water mm. uh, pool. Mm. And, and most of the things are related to the water pool because there's many echoed shots for that. And it's at the very beginning, you see Jaime crouch next to it with blood on him in a specific, like trying to like, tell you the audience that he's responsible for Santi's murder. And then when you get to see that scene again with the full context of it, and it has a totally different set of meanings, but it's that shot's also echoed when uh, Carlos is down there trying to talk to Santi before Jaime shows up with the knife. And it's echoed again after they dunk uh, uh, um Yacinto into the water for a brief moment. There's like a, a, the, the shot set up very much the same, and it's just this this constant echoing motif of of crouching or standing next to that. I don't even know what that water would be for because it's clearly not drinkable. No, um, well, Alex called it a water tank, but uh, that seems like an odd. It's I mean, it's more like a swimming pool. I I think. If if I had to make a guess, uh, I think it's to keep the cellar cooler and uh, oh, okay. through like evaporation or something because uh, there were – now, the I know the pool was made to, as part of the set, but there were jugs of olive oil in that cellar that they couldn't move from mm. the monastery that they were shooting in. And I think the idea is that there were all of these like – foodstuffs and things that needed to be kept cool and by having this like exposed pool of water Mm. that must have been filled up from some kind of really nasty like well or or something Mm. like runoff ground runoff or something that that kept the cellar more cool that's the best i can figure yeah Um, yeah that would make sense 
but but yeah because uh, there's also the the actual like people sinking into that pool those shots are reflected every time which it's very in close proximity to crouching next to it mm, yeah but the i mean the the their source of water seems to be there's a pump in the kitchen which is directly above that cellar which does kind of lead me to believe that that could be their source of drinking water oh <laughs> i mean it's just the, unpleasant <laughs> yeah the water that comes out of the pump doesn't have the detritus in it so no. i didn't i didn't draw that parallel but it's yeah. possible that there was like a filter or something mm, but that's just yeah, gross possibly. but i mean where else would it be coming from because otherwise it's coming from a, a, a spring or an underground um uh sinkhole or something which is oh my god though it so if that would be the case that means that they've been drinking the water that santi's been preserved in. oh my god and that parallels with the Rum in the bottles with the fetuses. Yes, that's and, exactly what it is. And it even looks just like it because yeah. it has that yellow tinge with like the particulate matter in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. There we go. Whew. <laughs> that's nasty. That's a, yeah, that's a, good way to, that's a good way to die of cholera and about 12 other diseases I can think of offhand. It really is. At the very least, those, those kids are all not well. They're barely eating as it is, but yeah. Well, this is true. Um, I think one of the, uh, the the visual motifs that appeals to me as well, because it has a symbolic element to it, is the, the fracturing, specifically the fracturing of pottery. And um, it only crops up a couple of times, but obviously it's, it's uh, emblematic of Santi's head and his, his visual appearance. And you have the, the jug being smashed when uh, Carlos is is kind of pranked on his first night. And that is, for me, it's this idea of everybody has some kind of internal breakage in this, particularly the adults. And the children's damage, for want of a better word, is more easily fixed because it's external. You can see it. And if you can see it, you can do something about it. Whereas the adults are hiding theirs and that makes them harder to repair. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. And and Santi specifically shot like a porcelain doll and so much of it that yeah. the, the direct correlation, my goodness. Absolutely. And it's that, that uh, imagery is used in the 2017 uh, It. Mm. There's a moment where a head is broken open and it looks like fractured pottery. There's also the the flashback when you see Sante finding Yakinto look trying to get it to the safe where it was like a, a more prosperous time and the representation of that is more porcelain ware. Mm, that there's yeah. a bunch of those cups that are unbroken and it's a representation of a better time and like yeah. as those dwindle, as those would be broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it as well, um going on that theme of, of broken pottery, how do we know about ancient civilizations? Because of the pottery that we dig up more often than not. Absolutely. We find pottery, we find bones. Ah, yeah. Man, it's just such a, the film is just so rich with its symbolism. It's just, it's kind of incredible, actually. There is uh, one visual uh, cue where um, Carlos is uh, peeling a hard-boiled egg uh, in in a way that uh, evokes Santi's cracked head. 
in a deliberate fashion. Also, the uh, the shotgun is very totemic. It looks like this this pillar of strength. It gets aimed at Jacinto by Casares, who doesn't fire it when he should. It then gets aimed at Jacinto by Conchita, who again doesn't fire it, and she didn't want to kill him. She just wanted him to stop what he was doing, and then it goes off. And um, there's actually a little, uh, like a, a blood vessel breaks in his eye, which is uh, much like uh, Captain Vidal's facial wound, like a little sign of the of the the dreadful monster underneath. Like he's you know perfect and handsome anyway, but then he gets injured in a way that kind of allows us to see the deep, the just the broken part of him but then he's running around with this uh, shotgun using it to threaten people and then at the end it gets used by carlos but not as a shotgun just as a poking device to to prod him into the water it's you know he's got that strength but carlos himself doesn't have to kill and yet that's the fatal blow Mm. And there is a, actually a second shotgun seen very briefly in the very beginning held by one of the Reds who shows up with Carlos. And mm. it's a tiny little thing that's more for like holding out. And it's a good representation of kind of the different military strength of those two sides because one is literally the symbol of fascism and the other one is literally the symbol of the Republic. And guerrilla warfare, yeah. But only one gun is fired the whole film and it's by accident. GDT also points out that uh, the four main heroes of the uh, film, Carlos, Casares, Carmen, Conchita, all begin with C, and Jacinto and Jaime, the two troubled young boys, the, you know, one of whom ends up going in the deepest of deep ends, uh, both begin with J. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this is complete coincidence, but those are the two letters that are the most distinct in um, Spanish because there, there is no soft C. And the and J is not hard. Mm, yeah, and of course J C Jesus Christ. The whole thing has a, a very Catholic pastiche to it. I mean, they're they're removing the symbols of the Republic to put up Catholicism symbols so that the whenever the fascists show up, they're not going to kill them. Mm. I mean, at one point they're literally under a crucifix, which again is magical thinking because they're not they're not putting it up because they believe in it. They're using it as a talisman. And, of course, by the end, the thing that saves the boys is the self-sacrifice by way of atonement by Casares. Oh, yeah, to go more into the the Jesus Mm. motif. He doesn't die necessarily for them, but because he He dies, dies, he is able to save them. Through a kind of like spirit of sorts as well. Through through the superstition that he cleaved to in his life. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Wait, does that make Santi like the son, Cesares, like the father, and then his ghost, like the spirit, to make like that trifecta? Nice. I like it. I think there's there's also that little hint of um, sometimes magical thinking works, even if it's just a placebo effect, even if it's just that by clinging to this superstitious notion you give yourself enough 
faith to keep yourself up off the floor long enough not to die that it's it's worth having sometimes yeah well uh carlos goes to the bomb and asks it to help him and it and it does like and and it's just the wind taking one of the streamers and blowing it at where santi's ghost is but it's still a moment of magical thinking it's still it, it and it works so the uh, the gothic romance movement started as a reaction to reason they're all about uh, em- boiling emotion uh, he said that uh, is war the enemy of reason, or is war the re- the, the 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 ultimate end of reason without um, emotion? It or? was it was something along the lines of of war is the ultimate action without reason. Yeah, mm. because there's there is no reason behind war. Any any reason that you try to interject into war is a reason not to do it. Yeah, and that again is is that push-pull of cultural extreme and then reaction, there's there's always going to be a swing of the pendulum in the other direction. And every violent swing of that pendulum will result in death and destruction and a, uh, a tearing down of what exists. So much though we might desperately want to keep that pendulum still to avoid that destruction we still can't there has to be some swing uh it derives from the same impulse which is what they call used to call graveyard poetry mm-hmm. gothic uh, gothic is a response to rationalism to the age of reason people start invoking emotion in a wild and crazy way and they are fascinated by the past uh, so they create a genre that in, in its time was incredibly modern and incredibly hip. And it's a mixture of romance, of, of a love story, of looking at the past with uh, a gilded eye and finding amongst the ruins of a, of a building, finding something disturbing, a secret that is deeply disturbing. You can find Gothic romance influence in Jane Eyre, in Great Expectations, in Wuthering Heights, in Northanger Abbey, and it's a genre that at the height of its power in Hollywood had great productions like Dragon Wick mm-hmm. with uh, Vincent Price, you know, or Rebecca by Hitchcock, yeah. you know, and, and I think this is a genre that uh, had not been done at that scale with that passion in a while. We're not reinventing it. People expecting that at the end we're going to find out that everything is a TV studio or that everybody's dead or the house is a rocket ship, they'll be disappointed. It's a hardcore gothic romance. Well, yeah, the idea of uh, the horror genre now often is about the the jumps and and things leaping out at you, but the gothic uh, genre really was more about this creeping sense of dread that things were not... And uh, things jumping at you. (laughs) I I always remember Lord Byron had a quote that would have been perfect for William Castle. He said, when everything else fails, uh, scared him. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was really beautiful because you use those devices. You use even the, trapped, the trappings of horror visually, but it's closer also to a fairy tale. Yeah. It's very beautiful in a way.
Okay, so, uh, Lauren, what were you about to say about uh, um, significant objects? Well, and now I'm going to break my own thing. Before we leave the talk about symbolism, another thing just occurred to me that I think Sharon's going to appreciate specifically. Uh, there's a third female character in this that we've completely uh, neglected, kind of on purpose. Alma. Uh, her, Alma. But they make uh, your you know, tried-and-true trifecta of the, the maiden mother crone. Of the three of them, and the one character, in, like it's not really nothing's really done with it except the character that is obviously like the representation of the mother is in three scenes and dies unceremoniously mm-hmm. because they're all orphans. Yeah, and so the mother can't be there. Yeah, and it, it's just again like another symbolic thing that I noticed as I was going through the the film. Nice. Uh, um, Alex just left the room for a moment, so I'm just going to point that one out to him because that was really awesome. Um, <coughs> Lauren just mentioned that uh, Conchita, Alma, and Carmen are the maiden, the mother, and the crone, but because they're all orphans, the mother is redundant, and that's why she's only in three scenes. <laughs> and then dies unceremoniously. Yeah, she was trying to save everyone, but it's it's just, it's... Oh, which is a very maternal action, though, sacrificing herself to try and save the children. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it was just, uh, when I watched it again this morning, it was just something that I realized and was like, well, we always talk about Maiden Mother Crone. I bet Sharon will appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for thinking of me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, so um, objects and the use of objects as characterization. Uh, Del Toro is apparently really well known for this. And I didn't realize it until I was reading about it earlier and then thinking back to the other films like oh wait yeah that's totally true and a lot of the characters have objects or or some kind of totem of sorts that becomes very representative of of who they are and what they do uh the shotgun that we were talking about before ends up in the doctor's hands to the point where his ghost even still carries it like sante doesn't have an object but uh ceres does and that gun which was only fired once by accident and never really like used. It wasn't even fired by him is just such a specific representation of his impotence Mm -hmm. that it's, it's like clearly on purpose. Um, But also it's his cross to bear, his, his cross to bear. But the other object that he has is his handkerchief that is soaked in Carmen's blood by the end. And it's like representing because it, it has like a hole in it as well as then soaked in Carmen's blood. And it's, it looks like this nice embroidered like symbol of like the aristocracy like I was talking about before. But it's flawed and tattered and ultimately drowned in blood. Mm. And the handkerchief is something that um, shows his lack of pragmatism. Because you see him stitching twice. He sews oh. up the uh, the guy who comes in at the beginning who's injured. Uh, then he sews up Carlos's suitcase. He could fix that handkerchief, but mm. it, would, it would make it look Im- more imperfect. Because the way a handkerchief is structured, if you sew it up, it will um, gather in bunch, the, the fabric. Yeah. So it will bunch and it won't fold as it should anymore. He could fix that handkerchief quite easily. He chooses not to. Yeah, the stitches would be more obvious than the hole is. Yeah, exactly. Oh. The reason that Santi doesn't have an object is because Santi is an object. Oh, yeah. He's an object to several of the other characters. Yeah. 
but so other objects for the main characters, Carmen's very easy. It's the leg. Mm. Um, and sort of by extension, the cane, uh, because she ends up using the cane. Like she walks around using the cane to hold herself up. But in the end, she uses it in a moment of, of violence against Yokinta. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the leg very specifically was an object. Can made I just say, by the represent- way, you are going all the way around the block with every single pronunciation of every single character name. It is confusing as hell. Folks. I think it's a genius idea, though, because one of them is going to be right. Oh yeah, yep. <laughs> the stop <laughs> clock is right. <laughs> Only you're like a clock that just keeps changing the time. See, that's the thing, Alex, is you have to remember, I'm American, and I barely speak English appropriately. So, <laughs> Spanish. I, I gotta mean, learn I, no I, Spanish. How, how about I just call him Jack? Jack. <laughs> Jack it's Charles and Caesar and and Carmen and, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, Dr. Chuck and... Uh, <laughs> Jamie and Jack. So... And so Owl. The, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so the G-Man, uh, or the J-Man, as it were, his object would... No, uh, Which Carmen's J-Man? There's two. The Sea Lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, no, Carmen's object is very obviously the leg. And it's this beautiful piece of, like, wood and metal with, like, secret compartments and things being hidden uh, that ultimately hides the, the gold that is not really anybody's object it's more like a macguffin of sorts uh for 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 mr j uh to try to to get um oh ironically jaime says when he's talking about how he'd do better comics more action more treasures and then by the end it's like can we do with less action and less treasure maybe (laughs) (laughs) so people don't die as much yeah and then uh, Carlos's object is, I think, the cigar box that he brings with him full of all of his little oh, yeah. treasures that end up being very representative of, like, his worldliness and his, his knowledge that he kind of brings to the other, the other children. Oh, uh, GDT claims that the uh, little frog, the bouncing frog he gives uh, um, to Galvez is uh, a call forwards to the toad in Pan's Labyrinth, which is... Man, it, like uh, he's putting Harry Potter to shame with that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would say Carmen has another object as well, which is the keys. Yes, mm. she is literally holding all the keys in this place. She knows everybody's secrets. She gives them the key for their locker, which means that she is responsible for where they keep all of their personal mm. tragedies. And she has the the big key for the safe, which is the thing that everybody's after. And she's even aware that Jacinta is stealing the keys because there's a very specific moment where she's feeling them and she rec- there's a recognition on her face that one of the two of them are missing, mm. which is why the safe key's not on that key ring. Oh, of course, she's wise to his schemes. She's just trying to spin it out. Yeah, because every time he comes into her bedroom, literally and figuratively, he takes a key. So if she keeps having keys for him to take, she can keep drawing him into her bedchamber. Oh. Huh. Also, uh, Carmen is very perceptive about everything that goes on here. She's very observant, and this falls under... Um, the whole how you demonstrate somebody's character without just having it say outright, this is how I am. Show don't Her tell. remark to uh, Dr. Cazares about you two should get on really well 
um, with Carlos because she's noticed that Carlos has brought books and is clearly a very thoughtful and clean and sensible little boy, which means that having somebody of a similar temperament reach out to him will help him settle in. Yeah. And she does it all without any ceremony. And I just realized what object uh, Yakinto has. Mm-hmm. It It's the pictures from his youth that he actually doesn't have. It's the fact that they're missing is what is representative of his character. Oh, everything he has, he's taken from someone else. The knife is Jaime's. The gun's not his. Um, the cigar thing. The, the car right. doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the, um, the the premises itself. The key he steals. The keys he's stealing from Carmen. Everything he's got is not his. Because the thing that is representative of his character, the object, has already been taken and put in that safe. Mm. Yeah, he's locked away. Or is his object Santi? Well, uh, but I don't. I don't know if Santi personalizes his character until we find out that he was the murderer. Santi Sun- personalizes the child that Jacinto has buried. Mm. The child that he won't be because he is shame- ashamed of it. Which, which is actually even more on point because he doesn't kill Santi on purpose. Exactly. It's ultimately an accident. It's ultimately not... Like, it's not his aggression that did it. Mm. It was it's selfishness carelessness. And, and, yeah, and mm. um, trying to pursue this gold. It's even more bone-chilling to note that Santi was still alive when he was thrown into the tank. Yeah, because he does... There are a couple air bubbles that come up to the top after he gets dunked, mm. and then it stops, which is... Yeah. Because of the looping nature of this film, folks, you probably most of you won't know this, uh, but if you watch this film over and over again in a short space of time, like we have, uh, it feels like we're always going to come back to this. Like the, these poor characters are but always going to go. Always this. been here, Carlos, and you feel yourself <laughs> like an insect trapped in amber. <coughs> Looping through this sad, sad ghost story tale bookended with the same speech and the same imagery. And it's described even as a tragedy repeating in the the dialogue about what a ghost is. That's one of the things, I believe, is something about a tragedy repeating itself. Yeah. Well, that is one of the definitions of war. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't fucking happen, but we keep doing it. And in, a, in another meta-contextual sense, it's also fascism because the Spanish, Spanish Civil War is what led to the rise of fascism in Europe that eventually led to the rise of fascism specifically in Italy and in Germany, which you could argue is, rise, is leading to the rising of fascism in other places today like the United States and Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, And to go back to what I said earlier, I disagree with GDT's statements that it's a wholly sad ending. There is hope, like we said, there are lessons learned. Balance is in some way restored. Uh, Misguided thuggery and tyranny are at least removed from this area, as are innocence and virtue. To balance out this, the the, the getting rid of Jacinto and his, um, his, his murderous ways, the children have to kind of grow up. They they they're forced into a very 
uh, unsettling um, young adulthood as they move out through this doorway. They leave behind their experience imprinted on the stone. If you remove the extremes, you then get to move forward with what's left of the balance. Yeah. But something that the site will replay and replay because what happened was simply so traumatic and so ruinous for everybody involved. It's maybe the best ghost story I've ever seen. I'm racking my... I mean, that there are most of the other really best ones, GDT is involved with as well. I was just going to well. say, they're vaguely connected with Del Toro, yeah. all the ones I'm thinking of that might possibly... Be the Orphanage, better. I think, maybe... Oh, but they're so good. I like, it's, the Orphanage, I think, is on a par with this by Bayona, and that was produced by Del Toro. We may mm. end up doing that for Halloween this year. Yeah. We're recording it in two days' time, and... Actually, it will follow almost immediately after the Del Toro shows. Um, the Others is also awesome, but it's cold. The Sixth Sense is also fantastic, but it's Shyamalan, <laughs> which unfortunately <laughs> impacts upon the performances. Yeah. And now that we're actually at the end of recording the Del Toro shows, I can say that Crimson Peak just edges out The Devil's Backbone and The Orphanage as my favourite ghost story. Yeah, I can't think of any ghost stories that would put on part of this. The Devil's Backbone is actually just one of my favorite horror films, and I I, mm. I really really appreciate horror. And for me specifically, um, long long ago, I had a real good friend Brent who was a big horror movie buff, but also like cultish horror movie buff, and he's the reason I saw this film to begin with back in like two thousand. I want to say maybe even earlier and he gifted me a DVD of it and I've I I recently have upgraded to the the Blu-ray the Criterion Blu-ray but I'm still going to keep that DVD because it watching that specifically with him Hmm. was such a formative experience on my growing appreciation for horror Uh, and like he's moved across the country and we don't talk very often anymore but those those like movie nights which the best of was the devil's backbone is something that i have a very personal like memory of and nostalgia for Actually, you mentioned the Criterion Edition there. We've got the 2011 UK Blu-ray, which looks good. But from the, by all standards, GDT went back to the original print for the Criterion Edition and made it look fan-bloody-tastic. And I am super envious of you, Lauren, because Criterion, and we've complained about this on this very show before, uh, tried to make absolutely sure that no one in the UK 
ever sees or outside of the USA, unless you, you're also on a uh, uh, Region A um, Blu-ray, can ever see their Criterion Blu-rays. No one must ever see The Devil's Backbone on Criterion or Rushmore in Criterion. I don't mm. understand the principle behind you're only hurting movie lovers. Blu-rays. I, no yeah. one is going to seek them out in this level of quality unless they really, really want that film. Yeah, and having watched having watched my original DVD and the Blu-ray version of it in the past couple of days, like it is a marked difference of the the remaster. Now, the Criterion Blu-ray was the only Blu-ray I could purchase. Oh yeah, in America in you States. can't get the version that we have. Yeah, which and is lucky then, you. I mean, I guess, but it is also way more expensive. True, but um, worth it. And, but then that also forced me, well, quote-unquote, forced me to buy the Criterion version of Pan's Labyrinth because oh, they are tiny, such tiny violin. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, no. But again, it ended up being like, I was like, oh, do I really want to spend $25 on a movie I already have? Yes. For this movie, yes. I would adore the opportunity to spend $25 on the Criterion edition of Pan's Labyrinth, but the same applies. So Criterion, whatever you like, you do release in the UK. I've seen it happen. You eventually release Tenenbaums, but not Rushmore. So uh, please pull your, your incredibly skillful fingers out and, uh, and gift the uh, UK with these wonderful, wonderful films, which the film lovers of the United Kingdom deserve to lose themselves in whilst the Cold War is reenacted. <laughs> One last thing, and it's to do with the... Uh, it's something I should have mentioned a lot earlier, but it's to do with the whole... Uh, the, the human being being the monster and the, uh, the the monster actually being human or what we would consider to have humanity. One of the first things you ever see... like The, the first visions you see of Santa, he's quite far off and you don't really get to see him close up. As soon as you do see him close up, when Carlos is snooping around the place where he died, what's the emotion on Santi's face? Fear. Fear. He is a ghost who is afraid. That is an extraordinary turn of events in a ghost story that's not a comedy. And it's it drew me in immediately. I was We were lucky enough to be able to see this in 2001 in the cinema because it was playing at our local art house when we lived in York. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, we, I then took, uh, a, fr- a friend of ours, uh, who loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer to see Blade 2, and we said, oh, it'll be just like that. And we love Guillermo del Toro, and as it turned out, uh, our friend, who was quite squeamish, didn't like blood that much, but did like vampires, was not too impressed with Blade 2. 
So, so I just want to point out, you got to see this in theaters. Now, who's jealous? Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is the devil's backbone for this this wonderful week, and it has been. I mean, I've been looking forward to doing this for years. But I figured, why just do the Devil's Backbone? We'd have to do a whole bunch of Del Toros, which became intimidating. And so we kicked this project off. Uh, and we will be back next week with the entire Blade trilogy. But I've got a feeling we're going to focus mostly on Blade 2 and say almost nothing about Blade Trinity. <sighs> Oh, God, that movie. (laughs) (laughs) And the week after that, we'll be doing Pan's Labyrinth. So be back here for that and then that. And we will see you then. And uh, once again, folks, you need to be filling in the holes in your GDT collection because we're going the the whole hog on this one. Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 2, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, Shape of Water. Okay. Right. Thank you very, very much, Lauren. Uh, If people want to check your stuff out, where can they find it? Fortunately, there's not really a whole lot of stuff left. The podcast is still up. If you search for Year of Steam, there's still the last season there. Uh, It probably won't be up for too much longer, maybe another half year or so. But uh, I haven't done any of my own projects outside of my ridiculous work so that's really all i've got left on the the greater internet notably uh lauren was medical consultant on let them go (laughs) so uh, anytime you hear anything even vaguely medically related i had to consult lauren first just to make absolutely sure that it was all kosher i was glad to be helpful (laughs) if you haven't yet started listening to let them go and you love del toro then you will hear his influences in my work. This story is, like The Devil's Backbone and Crimson Peak, a gothic romance set in a house of secrets. Here's a clip. Rebecca stepped through the doorway, which had shrunk in the intervening years since her last visit, and paused to look around. Each old angle brought her back in time. The golden cream walls were crisscrossed with darkened wooden beams. Faded couches of mint and bottle green flanked the borders of the parlour on the right, culminating in the fireplace. An iron pan ingrained with ashes stood to attention beside the quartered logs of elm burning atop the grate. Rebecca could smell the very edge of blackened chestnuts as she closed her eyes. Through in the kitchen there would be the stove, radiating further warmth across to the round table where she had sat with her mother, sketching their ideal castle nursing a small paper bag of sherbet, another of licorice comfits, and two tall glasses of dandelion and burdock. She found herself yearning for that precise combination of tastes. Beside the kitchen, the scullery played host to the house crockery. The water pump and the mangle, which Amanda had convinced Timothy was a medieval torture device for flattening the hands of witches, he had declined to help her demonstrate. On the left, down the hall under the staircase, was the doorway to the cellar that they were only allowed in with an accompanying grown-up on account of all the mischief that could be made with stored artefacts and tools both sharp and blunt. It was a shockingly cold place to venture down to from the world above, and an oppressively lonely one. Rebecca ventured further into the house and glanced into the dining room to where Uncle Matthew's battered, worn piano stood. It's full board open, should he wish to sit down again and play a tune. 
Each of the keys supported a thin layer of fine grey dust. Something felt different. It was the same house, to be sure, possibly too much so. She could now see cobwebs gathered in the upper corners of each room, cracks in the paint, unmended fastenings, and windows touched with the mottled fingers of damp. It was not a place of grandeur that had declined, so much as a happy home which had stopped in place. Let Them Go is currently on episode 11, and you can download all of those episodes right now by subscribing to the New Century Multiverse on iTunes or wherever else you get podcasts. Both New Century and School of Movies are funded by you guys on Patreon. Our special $15 sponsors get a shout-out every week, so many thanks to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, James Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Fennick, Toby Youngius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. And we'll see you next week for the Blade Trilogy. Many thanks to our guest for the entire season of Del Toro Films, Lauren Grieve. Fear not the dead, fear the living. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out.